Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of the first book of Samuel, chapter 16 and 17. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Today we're studying David and the Psalms, and we are at 1 Samuel 16 and 17 in conjunction with Psalm 23. Last week, our theme was to obey is better than sacrifice. Today, the theme is when battling giants, let the Lord fight for you. Now, Donatello was an Italian sculptor of the Renaissance period, born in Florence, Italy in 1386. And he studied classical sculpture. He was one of the great sculptors. His work influenced all parts of Rome, Padua, Siena. Many people would model off of Donatello's work. Donatello was financed by the Italian banker Cosimo de Medici family. They commissioned him to make a David, a David statue. This would be the first freestanding nude male sculpture since the days of antiquity. And there was Donatello's version of David. It was mounted and displayed so that people could walk around and see the front and the back. This is his vision, a bronze statue of David from the 1440s. Verrocchi, Verrocchio was another claim, uh, very famous sculptor in Florence at about that same time period. He also sculpted a David that was beautiful and in the round. But then came Michelangelo. And Michelangelo arrived in Rome in 1496 when he was 21 years old. And while he was in Rome, he was asked, commissioned to make the Pieta. So as a young man, that is in St. Peter's today, but young Michelangelo in his early 20s made the Pieta with the Virgin Mary weeping over the body of Jesus. It sits in St. Peter's to this day. It was said that when Michelangelo would go into the marble quarry, he would select the marble. He, he just knew. He just could see. He could envision what he was about to sculpt. He could visualize out of that block of stone, what he could make. Michelangelo now was at the height of his creative powers after doing the Pieta in 1504. He went back to Florence and he was commissioned for his most famous sculpture work, David. He was 26 years old. He took on the task and worked at it for just two years, which really isn't that long. This was his interpretation of David, far different from any of the other versions before him. The others were out of bronze, and they always a slight David standing on the head of conquered Goliath. But Michelangelo had a different vision. He chose to depict David right before the battle, right before the battle when he was focused and alert and ready for combat against the giant Goliath. Michelangelo used a classical pose called contrapposto, which meant that most of the weight was on one leg, and so the shoulders and arms twist a little bit off access from the hips and legs and gave a majestic, dynamic look to the sculpture. He depicted David right at that moment when he decided to 
battle Goliath. The battle belonged to the Lord, and David was all in, trusting the Lord. It became a symbol of Florentine freedom, the little guy winning over the big guy, the giant. And it was an impressive masterpiece in line and form. You can hardly see the slingshot because David carries it over his shoulder, implying that David's victory was due more to his cleverness, to his trust in God, not just a sheer force of a weapon. And his self-confidence and his concentration are values that were highly regarded in the Renaissance time period. They were striving to the idea of thinking man. And so the cleverness of David is shown in this statue. The statue is 17 feet tall, 5.16 meters. It's at the Academia gallery and visited by 1.7 million visitors every year. It was supposed to go on top of the church. It was supposed to be one of the Old Testament characters put on top of the church in Florence. But when Leonardo da Vinci and Sandra Botticelli saw the sculpture, they said, oh, no, 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 no. It's not going up on top of a church. It must be where the people can see it. And so they decided to put it in front of Florence Town Hall, where all the people could come and walk around the entire statue. And it was a symbol, again, of little Florence up against bigger giants, and Florence would win. So it did not get put on top of the cathedral. And it's clear that David was part of Abraham's covenant. He is a circumcised man of God, and he would trust God's word, and he would let the Lord battle through him and with him. This enormous block of marble uh, lie abandoned for 25 years. Two other artists were commissioned to do the piece, but they refused the marble, saying it came from uh, the quarries in Carrara, and it was inferior. It had too many imperfections. They couldn't work with the piece. But 26-year-old Michelangelo said, I can do it. And so he worked on that from ages 26 to 28, and it's over 500 years old today and still blows people away when you go stand in front of it. When it was brought to the place where it was going to be put, it was May 14th of 1504. They had to demolish an archway. It took 40 men at night in the at midnight to tie this big David onto with ropes onto a large wooden cart. 40 men and they used trunks of trees as rollers and they put these tree trunks down the street and they rolled this statue to place it at City Hall. Now this was the political heart of the city. The statue represented Florence, the nascent republic's capacity to prevail over its foes with intelligence and strategy rather than simple military might. The statue that had to be moved for David to take this new place was Donatello's Judith and Holfernes, which is another similar story where we have a, a woman, a little woman defeating, again, a, a large giant, Holfernes, the general of the Assyrian army. Underdog female Judith will defeat a giant, the Assyrian general Holfernes. She was a widow, an, a small widow defeating an arrogant giant. He called for her. He wanted her. Uh, he had sent for Judith to come to his quarters. She came and laid down. His heart was ravished with her passion, and he was aroused. This is right out of scripture. He had been waiting for an opportunity to seduce her from the day he first saw her. And Holfernes said to her, have a drink and be merry with us. Well, Judah said, I will gladly have a drink, my Lord, because today is the greatest day of my whole life. And then she took what her maid had prepared for her to eat and drink. And 
she drank her own stuff that the maid had prepared, while Horfenius was gratefully pleased, and he drank a great quantity of wine. He drank much more wine than he had ever drunk in one day since he was born. Judith was left alone in the tent, with Horfenius stitched out on his bed, for he was dead drunk. Judah, standing beside the bed, said in her heart, O Lord God of all might, look at this hour on the work of my hands for the exaltation of Jerusalem. Now indeed is the time to help your heritage and to carry out my design to destroy the enemies who have risen up against us. She went to the bedpost near Holfernes' head. She took down his sword that hung there. She came close to his bed, took hold of his hair and of his head, and she said, Give me strength today, O Lord God of Israel. Then she struck his neck twice with all her might and cut off his head. And she rolled the body off the bed and pulled down the canopy from the post, and soon afterward she went out and gave Holfernus's head to her maid, who placed it in her food bag. Then she said to them with a loud voice, Praise God, oh, praise him. Praise God, who has not withdrawn his mercy from the house of Israel, but he has destroyed our enemies by my hand this very night. Then she pulled the head out of the bag and showed it to them and said, See here the head of Holfernes, the commander of the Assyrian army, and here is the canopy beneath which he lay in drunken stupor. The Lord has struck him down by the hand of a woman. And they all cried, Blessed are you in every tent of Judah. Blessed are you, O Judah. So we find David today in a similar artwork with the heads of giants. The little guy wins. And, and like Hannah prayed, the humble is exalted and the arrogant is made low. David joins the blesseds. David joins the head crushers of the Old Testament today in our study. Remember the two women, Judith and Jael, flanking Mary, the Mary, the ultimate head crusher, helping her son crush the head of Satan. David is from the house of Jesse. Mary is also from the house of David, stemming back to Jesse. In June of 1504, David, the new David of Michelangelo, was placed in the Florence Town Hall, and Judith had to go away. Judith and Holfernes were moved because David was so magnificent and beautiful. Donatello's sculpture of Judith and Holfernes got put in a new location, but Michelangelo would not forget about Judah. And in his Sistine Chapel ceiling, he flanks David and Judith together at the far west end. In those triangle penitives, one in each corner, they are people who saved Israel. Because of, of trusting the Lord and letting the Lord battle for them, Israel and the seed of the Messiah was spared. So Michelangelo puts those David and Judith and the, and the heads of the giants in those corners on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo accepted many commissions, sculptures, and paintings throughout Florence, but many of them had to go unfinished, especially when in 1505 he was called by Pope Julius II, and Pope Julius, that's a picture of Julius painted by Raphael, Julius wanted Michelangelo, the best sculptor of the time, to sculpt his own tomb. And so Pope Julius had Michelangelo working on a project with many figures, and that's when Michelangelo also carved his famous Moses. It took over 40 years to complete that project because it wasn't up to his standards. It, the plans kept changing because St. Peter's was also being built at the same time. He was called away also to do the uh, Sistine Chapel, but Julius didn't even use the tomb. As it turns out, he gets buried in St. Peter's next to his uncle, Pope Sixtus IV. So 
Michelangelo was called away to do the Sistine Chapel. That took him four years from 1508 to 1512. And uh, David now is in the Acomedia Gallery because they moved it for protection against the elements. It used to be, they put a copy of it out by City Hall. So, so people that don't want to pay the admission price to the gallery can still see a small, imperfect replica. But if you want to pay $21.55, you can go in and, and get your time on your ticket and you'll get a few minutes in that gallery to see David. The spring cleaning of Michelangelo's David takes place every year. All the statues in the museum are cleaned four times a year, but his majesty David gets a cleaning every two months. He's so special and they have special vacuums. He's very well taken care of to this day, this very magnificent statue. We know from our lesson today that David was a shepherd. That's a humble position, but shepherds and shepherding were very important in the Bible. Jesus himself says he is a good shepherd. He told us in John 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find green pastures. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. They know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in Luke 15, Jesus told a parable about lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which he lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me for I have found my one lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. And you know if you have a kid who's that lost sheep, you know the joy it will be when they come back to the church and to the body of Christ and to Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus called himself a good shepherd. And when the risen Christ reinstated Peter, it was not as a fisherman, but also as a good shepherd. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. That's a shepherd. A second time, Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, not a fisherman, a shepherd. And a third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He's making him a shepherd. Jesus turns a fisherman into a shepherd and gives him a chair, an office to lead his own kingdom on earth. And that chair of St. Peter sits at St. Peter's in Rome, elevated by four doctors of the church, two from the east, two from the west. And on the back of the chair is this scene, John 21, where Jesus reinstated Peter, not as a fisherman, but as a shepherd. And Peter, in his own words, writes to the church, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Tend the flock of God that is your charge. Peter's telling that to the other apostolic bishops. Tend the flock of God that's in your charge. Not by constraint, 
but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those who are in your charge, but as examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, capital S, Jesus, when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. So shepherds are important in the Bible. And every bishop, this is the bishop of Rome, every bishop is called to be a shepherd. And Pope Francis has asked his priests and bishops to smell like their sheep. And on his cross, his pectoral cross, it is a shepherd, the good shepherd, with a sheep over his neck. And this was a, a tradition since Pope Leo III in the year 811, all the bishops and Pope would wear a pectoral cross. A lot of them are very fancy with gold and jewels, but Pope Francis said, no, I, I have a cross. I'll keep my cross. He got it when he was an archbishop, and he would serve the poorest of the poor. It's not fancy gold. It's not jeweled. It's silver. And he would hold on to that cross when he'd go visit the poor and the destitute people in Boneseros, and the downtrodden, he'd pray with them, and he'd let them hold his cross, and he'd let them kiss his cross. So they were kissing Jesus, the good shepherd. Also, archbishops and bishops in a metropolitan jurisdiction large enough are given pallium. That pallium is given to them by the chief shepherd, the pope, and it's made out of lamb's wool. They're blessed on the feast of St. Agnes, who was a 13-year-old virgin martyr in Rome, and she always had a lamb in her hand. They receive a pallia from the pope made out of virgin lamb wool, so they can have like a sheep over their shoulders that they can find the lost sheep and bring them home. This is our shepherd, George Lucas, getting his pallium from Benedict XVI. Those lambs that they, that it is to show, like to be a good shepherd, to have a lamb around your neck. The shepherds also have a crozier or a staff with a hook on it. You see Jesus, the good shepherd, in paintings with that, going after. The, the job of a shepherd is to go after the lost, to seek and save the lost. And we'll see our, our shepherds with their croziers, with their staffs, their shepherd's staffs. There's our bishop with his. But the pope carries a papal ferula, which means rod in Latin. They carry the rod, the shepherd's rod. They are the leader of the Catholic Church, and they are the official. They have the rod, and they lead the flock. And Pope Francis here has one with a sheep on it. That's Jesus, the lamb that was slain but is risen from the dead. And Pope Francis uses a variety of ferulas. This is one he got the people of Lampedusa, the immigrants on the boats. They made it out of boats that where people drown uh, coming over as immigrants. They would take the wood of the boats and, and they made him a uh, cross. Here, the people of Colombia made him this cross. The people of Mozambique, South Africa, made him this cross. And he receives these as gifts. The, the young people for the vocational discernment synod made him this. And he'll use these different rods as he shepherds. John Paul used to love this one. You'll remember seeing this one. It actually belonged first to Pope Paul VI, but all the popes also use it. Benedict used it. Francis uses it as well. You'll notice in pictures. Benedict liked this one of Pius IX as well. He would use that. And Pope John Paul, when it was the year, the Jubilee year of redemption in 1990, he used Pope Leo XIII's ferula, his rod with the triple cross. And so, also, I want you to know bishops have the apostolic authority as chief exorcists to drive out evil spirits. They have that chain of command from Jesus himself, the authority to drive out demons. And so uh, we're going to see a little of that today with David. He will be given power and authority to drive out evil spirits from Saul today. 
So the call to shepherd, it's nothing out of the ordinary for God's chosen people. Many of Israel's faith heroes had the occupation of being a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd with great herds of sheep. So great were his sheep that he and Lot, another shepherd, his nephew, had to divide and go to different lands to pasture their their flocks. Abraham's son Isaac was a shepherd. His own son Isaac was not the lamb. The lamb of God was coming. God hid a ram in the thicket, but Isaac was also a shepherd. Jacob, his son, was also a very successful shepherd. He met his love of his life, Rachel, at the well watering flocks. Jacob was successful at breeding too. You'll remember the speckled sheep. Uh, He was so successful that he was able to eventually separate from Rachel's father, Laban. Moses also defended the daughters of Jethro at the well while watering sheep. And Moses was a shepherd, minding his flocks when he sees a burning bush off to the distance, one that would not be consumed. And the Old Testament hero Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, was also a shepherd. We're told in Genesis 37 that Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. David today was a shepherd boy in line with all those great shepherds of the Bible who had gone on before him. The rolling hills of Bethlehem in Israel is full of shepherds and one millennium after David, 1,000 years after David in those same hills, a star would appear and the shepherds would see it. History tells us that in the ancient Near East, David existed 1,000 years, one millennium before Christ. And David is from Bethlehem, the place where Christ was born. The shepherd boy from Bethlehem was a boy after God's own heart. He was destined to replace King Saul and to one day be the king over a united monarchy of Israel. Now, the theme today, when battling giants... Let the Lord fight for you. So here we go. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So you see Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. And the tomb of Jesse and the tomb of Ruth is in Hebron today. Hebron is just a little further south from Bethlehem. 1 Chronicles 2 tells us that Jesse's genealogy is he is from tribe Judah. So you see tribe Benjamin and then the dotted line and then tribe Judah is right under. Jerusalem is in Benjamin's tribe, but Bethlehem is in tribe Judah. That's where David is from. What was the blessing given to Judah by his father on his deathbed. Jacob gave a final blessing to each of his sons. Remember last week we said Benjamin was a ravenous wolf. That was his blessing. What did Jacob say to Judah when he blessed him? This is what he said, and this is the tribe David is from. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his foal to the vine, and his ass's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth shall be white 
with milk. That's the blessing Jacob gave to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The king, the Mashiach, the Messiah, is coming from the tribe of Judah. Now, Micah 5 in the Old Testament, Micah was a prophet who said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah was another name for Bethlehem, you are little to be among the clans of Judah. But from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin from, is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in travail has brought forth, then the rest of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The Messiah is coming from Bethlehem, from tribe of Judah. Numbers told us this, Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That star settled over Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There it is, little among the tribes. David's hometown, Jesse's hometown, the place where Jesus was born. <laughs> so, Samuel, go fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. King Saul was ruling. King Saul was thinking he was God. Remember last week? The Lord said, Samuel, take a heifer with you and say that I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I name to you. The Lord's going to tell Samuel which one it is. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded because Samuel hears the word of the Lord and he obeys it. And he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came up to meet him, trembling. And they said, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, peaceably I have come. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves ready. Come and sacrifice. Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice as God had asked. When they came, Samuel took, he looked at Eliab and thought, this is, this is uh, Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, oh, surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord said to Samuel, oh, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that we learned last week, that the Lord was looking for a man after his own heart. Saul was not that man. Saul was looking out for his own self. Jesse called the next son Abinadab. He made him pass before Samuel. And he said, oh, no, neither has he been chosen. Then Jesse had Shammah pass by, the third son. Well, Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to the Lord, the Lord has, or to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. It's none of these. The Lord hadn't spoken to Samuel yet, as he said he would. Seven sons have come through the line. The room is empty. Seven, the perfect biblical number of completions, surely. But no, the greater power is on the eighth day in the New Testament. It'll be son number eight. Do you have anyone else? Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's just a shepherd, you know. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. And he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. 
He was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. That was part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters 16 and 17, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.